Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the studio. It's Lepi Duels. It's episode 23. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you haven't been here before, here's how the show works. In a moment, you're going to meet our four distinguished guests. Each of those guests will go 1v1 versus the other three contestants. Each of those contestants will have one minute to deliver their points on the assigned debate topic, along with an additional 20 seconds to respond to their opponent's comments. After that, I, as the host, will determine a winner of each duel, and the first one to fill up their scoring bar wins the episode. Let's meet this week's cast. First up, joining us after his win in Peoria, Illinois, at Ledgestone, live from Lake Eureka, it's Trevor Harbold. Taking on Trevor in round one, filling in for the second straight episode, thanks again to Dick Engelman. Our third guest this week is the winningest player in Lepi Duels history, the brand manager at Great Lakes Disc, Brian Popowolf-Frawley. And finally, rounding out the cast, returning from his long trip overseas in Europe, he's the brand manager at Latitude 64, Seth Fenley. Thanks for joining us, all four of you. Excited to get things rolling this week. Trevor, you are up first kicking us off. Simon Lazat uh, made some news on hole 16 this past week at Deglo in the final round when he threw over literally everything to get a uh, penalty stroke for par 10 feet from the basket and essentially guaranteeing himself the win with two holes to play. Some drama ensued, some different thoughts came from different uh, perspectives, but I want to know, is there a long-term fallout to that decision on hole 16 by Simon? Trevor? I mean, the bigger picture is he played smarter than everybody else on that hole. Let's be real. The rules stated that, you know, you take it where you go out of bounds at, and everybody was trying to go down the tunnel, and he went over top like Simon does and played a smart move. I think that it's dumb that we have this kind of OB thing, like on an island hole where you can just put it in. You should have had a drop zone or maybe make it uh, stroke and distance on stuff like that so people can't do things like that. So as far as a fallout, I don't know if it's a fallout or if it's something that we are going to see a change um, in the uh, the way the islands are played and the way that OB is played maybe in the near future with the Pro Tour and the PDGA. But I think it was a smart move by Simon. He solidified his win with that shot, and everybody was like, what is going on? But on D-Glow, on that hole, I don't think it's ever been OB before. So um, that could be something that's you know came out. It was new. Like They did, they thought about OB, but they didn't think about the, uh, the way that Simon or somebody with a big arm would throw. So... Um, if that hole didn't have OB, he's 60 long and he's putting for a crazy, you know, birdie putt. But I think he played it smart and we'll see what comes of this after uh, the fallout of all of it. All right, Dick. So I agree. I think uh, it was a very smart move and everything. And, you know, that I think it was an oversight by some of the folks who set up that course. And I'm not trying to call them out or anything, but they definitely didn't think of that. We know that it's a brand new out of bounds area of the island and if if it's still that way next year and they don't have to go to the drop zone, I think that's shame on them. But for this year, I don't know where he got that idea from, um, if he already thought of that going into the round or in previous rounds, but that was genius. I mean, he he really was smart making that move. And Allen Iverson said it, he played to win the game, and he did. And that's the move that sealed it for him, basically. So, I mean, if it's change next year sure it should be probably but this year rules are rules and he played by the rules and he 
he won because of it. So that's all I got to say. All right, Trevor, separate yourself a little bit more if you can. You did touch on like a future fallout of this decision by Simon, even insinuating maybe a PGA situation with, with stroke and distance changing or the Pro Tour stroke and distance changing. Uh, build on that a little bit. Yeah, so I think basically when it comes down to it is uh, stroke and distance would be a great thing, I think, for, for shots like this, maybe on entire courses, so people can't throw just right next to the basket OB and take an easy par or an easy birdie. Some people will say, like me, who's getting older, who can't throw that far, have to actually play the hole the way it's played. So I think it's something that should they should look at with OBs and with island shots. So um, I think Simon, again, played the, the right way, and if I had his cannon of an arm, I probably would have done the exact same thing for to secure my win. So kudos to him um, on the rest of it, if you ask me. All right, Dick, can you win another duel against Trevor? Should be easy. I mean, one thing we haven't discussed is the Eagle started off that hole he shot before Simon did, and so he was already out of bounds, and so that made Simon's choice even easier to make that out-of-bounds stroke and just take that punishment a little bit. I think if Eagle was inbounds, it would have been a different story, and maybe he was going to still pump the guts up the middle there, but he didn't need to. He already saw Eagle out-of-bounds. He was the only guy that was close to him, and Again, he played to win the game, and he did. Well said. I think uh, it's important, Dick, that you brought up the eagle throwing first thing and throwing OB to take a bogey um, situation. I think that's really important to recognize. If we're sticking to the tre uh, the question itself, though, Trevor, i got to give you the win here in the opening duel. So that sends us to duel number two, Brian and Seth. Seth returns from his world travels over in Europe. Let's see what he's got for us. Um, Question number two, Manabu Kajiyama, speaking of world travelers, he's back in the USA for the first time in a while. He's the highest rated player in the world, shows up at Diglo, finishes bottom 10. How much are you reading into this, Brian? Listen, uh, ratings are based on your competition and, and how much you beat your competition by, in Manu's case. Uh, and, and how your rating will increase based on that. That's a very loose definition, but we're going to go with that for my argument. Uh, Manu has played a lot of events, and that's super awesome. Uh, his last event, he was uh, the highest-rated player by 20 points. His event prior to that, highest-rated player by 35 points. His event prior to that, by 50-plus points. You get my point here. This, the competition that Manu is going up against just isn't the same. Uh, I don't think there's much to read into it. I don't think that, you know, we have to be rude or anything. Uh, Manu went up against a much higher average player than he is used to, and I'm going to throw it out there. I assume on a course that he doesn't play often. That's just my assumption. I don't think he plays toboggan too often. Yes, it's unfortunate. We were all really excited. I wish he was on camera round one. I think that was a miss by the PDGA. Uh, but, yes, we shouldn't read too much into it. Brian, I don't think it needs to be an assumption. I think he definitely doesn't play toboggan. Uh, Seth, go ahead. Yeah, so I think that there's a little bit to learn from this, and we can build off of what Brian has said in regards to ratings, right? So the reality is is that any players who are playing outside of the primary tours, being the U.S. Tour and even now the Euro Tour, are seeing issues where their ratings don't accurately reflect how they play. And so they get these ratings that make them seem like they're greater players than they are, and then they go to these events, 
and they don't match up. And what that shows to us is really a flaw in the rating system, or at the very least, a flaw in how we are using the ratings to judge how players play. I think at the end of the day, as Brian described ratings, they're doing their job. But the reality is, is that as the tours grow, it's almost to a point to where ratings don't matter right it's almost to a point where we need to be focusing on the tour standings and not so much the ratings to really build the storylines all right you guys both had great points there now get uh, a little bit more direct if you can why do you deserve to win this duel brian yeah i again um no knock on him i don't think this is his fault in any way uh, we've beaten the rating system here like a dead horse on this show we'll beat it again more congrats seth um but more importantly like i think it's a lot of situation here he came over played a course he probably doesn't play too often against competition he's not used to playing against over four days and he traveled halfway across the world I hope and I expect his rating to be better over his next two events at the 50th annual uh, uh, Rochester Flying Disc Open, Jim Palmer Flying Disc Open, and then at Worlds. I assume we see an increase there. Seth? Yeah, so um, Brian says not to read anything into it. I'm here saying, you know, we should read something into it in regards to how we're assessing the top talent in the sport. And so I think at the end of the day, when we're making a decision on how the outcome of this debate is, we look at, are we just talking about a singular player or are we talking about the entire sport as a whole? And I brought in a significant larger portion of the discussion here. But the thing was about one guy. <laughs> Good stuff from both of you guys there. I think it's important, Seth, that you continue to beat the same point over and over that plenty of uh, contestants have done on this show. And that's the fact that ratings don't really matter for the top level. And to be honest, they're not really serving any purpose at all on the Pro Tour at this point. So I'm glad you said that. However, I think if we're looking at this question um, by itself, I think Brian answered it much more directly and concisely. So uh, with, with plenty of points to back it up. So Brian takes the win here in duel number two, sends us to duel number three. Brian, you're back up. You're taking on Dick. Kristen Tatar won the European Championships this past week and continues to dominate over there as well as in the United States. So she's headed back to the States now for Worlds. Is she already the greatest FPO player of all time, Brian? Listen, uh, I don't think she's uh, the best of all time yet. Uh, maybe that's just me liking Jordan more than LeBron, but... Uh, I just think that he, she is uh, having an extremely great season, uh, maybe the best FPO season of all time. And if you look at the 2020 on, uh, you can definitely say she's winning this decade. Uh, that's super important to note here, uh, but she is not a five-time world champion. We have a few of those in this sport, uh, albeit you know years past, smaller fields, things like that. But that being said, um, she is... Uh, not not at that level yet with her stats um she's not uh she's not the most money ever uh for an fpo player um she's not the biggest contract ever for an fpo player um those are things that i kind of look at uh to pad those stats of are you the greatest yet uh she is having a great season maybe the second greatest disc golf season of all time behind uh mcbest 2015 but unfortunately it's just not uh 
She's not the goat yet. Okay, Dick. Is Kristen Tatar the goat? She, at this point, yes, I think she is. Um, she has been so consistent. Anytime she's been over here, and you take out a couple years with COVID, imagine if she had been over in America for those tournaments as well. Um, I enjoy the longevity, you know, argument that Brian's given you. Like, she has not won the five world championships. She hasn't gotten the most cash ever or whatever else, but you you put her up against anybody right now, she's the best, and the best are still playing because before that it was Paige Pierce. But right now it's Kristen Tatar. She is always on fire. I hope she didn't get hurt over there at the championship, but she uh, she's unbeatable. She's always on the podium, and if she, uh, if she ever even loses, it's by close, but she's always blowing people out. Just like LeBron James being the best player ever. That's Kristen Tatar. <laughs> all right, bringing in the LeBron versus Jordan debate into a Kristen Tatar best of all time debate. I love it, Dick. Brian, uh, respond to his comments. Yeah, uh, it's just very short-sighted to only look at recent history. Yes, she is a great player, but going back to all of the wonderful back stats, she's not the highest-rated woman of all time. She doesn't have the most world championships of all time. She doesn't have the most elite majors of all time. Is she the GOAT was the question. Is she the greatest player right now? Like today, heads up, I would definitely pick her over everyone else. But in the GOAT, as in greatest of all time, she does not have the time over this period to win that argument. Dick, defend yourself. I think if you take, I, we both assume Paige Pierce, you're saying, is the best of all time. She's, I don't know, Paige in her prime, Juliana in her prime. Yeah, well, not. They're not both Juliana. great. Not Juliana, but either way, right now, Tatar is better than Paige at her best. And there's way more competition right now than there was, you know, five, ten years ago when Paige is winning her world championships. And I know she's had some more recently, but she's done that over the last 10, 15 years, whereas Tatar is going when it's the best competition ever. And there's no doubt about that. So she is the best ever right now and for the past few years and I, I consider her to be the best going forward for the next five ten years all right so this is a debate that's going to be continue to be had uh, across this disc golf for the next decade or so while Tatar's in her prime dick i thought you should have led with Tatar at her best is better than Paige pierce at her best and built off of that argument i thought you missed that opportunity uh brian had better points brian had better points to win this one He's going to take this duel down. Sends us to duel number four, Seth versus Trevor. <laughs> Seth, Seth, you are leading us off here. Udisc uh, upgraded their annual pro account to $29.99 uh, for the year. What does this do for the sport? What kind of impact does this have um, on the sport as a whole, Seth? Yeah, so I think that it actually shows that we're progressing, right? Like, I see a lot of people complaining about the price raising, but then when you take into comparison other sports and the apps that are associated with them, the prices are right in line with those sports. And I think that what UDISC is looking towards is how they can be sustainable for the future. As someone who has worked closely with those guys in the past, I know that they're focused on not just um, having a sustainable business, but on growing the sport. 
And so they wouldn't be making this change if they didn't think that it was going to have a positive impact for the sport. Additionally, one of the things that they are doing with this uh, promotion of the like price raise is they're actually making scorecards free um, or more of them free than we're currently free. And so I think that they're even opening up more access inside the app to help uh, sustain that price raise. Well said, Seth. Trevor? First of all, I want to say from the last one that the goat in women's disc golf hasn't even touched the disc yet. So um, <laughs> but we'll go on to this one. Twenty nine ninety nine for UDisc. I'm signing up all day. I think UDisc, again, I've, I've harped on UDisc for so many times on this on this podcast or this duel is that there are one of the driving forces in our sport to gain all this exposure. You can do so much on U disc and I think it's worth twenty nine ninety nine all day, um, because you can do so many different things. You can keep the scorecards, but you said it's like a free scorecard. I mean I don't I don't really understand that because we're still paying for it, so it's not really free. But um, U-Disc is the most polarizing thing in our sport for me um, and for any amateur that's on the course. Um, and a lot of the pros, they keep their stats. I go through all the time and check out my stats and see how I did on a course and know how to, to go through a course and manage it because of U-Disc. But I think it's great for twenty nine ninety nine. You can see where all the courses are in the entire world, take your directions to it. You can hook up with your friends. Um, it's perfect. It's the greatest thing ever for disc golf, if you ask me. All right, everybody's loving on U-Disc here. Seth, uh, separate yourself if you can. Why do you deserve to win duel number four? Yeah, so I think that the reality here is that the it's not just about a love fest, right? It's about understanding the impact that this has on the sport, both from a price-raising uh, side of things where it shows that people in the sport are willing to pay more, but additionally, in the whole ethos that is UDISC in growing the sport. And so, as I said in my first speech, if they they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't think that they were going to grow the sport through this and so i think ultimately that's the biggest impact here and that's the positive to take away from this trevor respond well i'm glad you just won this argument for me because i said that a long time ago that udisc is one if not one of the single most biggest things that's happened for our sport to get more people in it and to um, continue the growth of our sport. I think UDISC is one of the biggest things that's happened in our sport. So I know what you're saying. You're saying that more money brings more sustainability, which is perfect, but it's also going to give them um, so many more things to do within the app. When you're getting more money, you can you can set up so many cooler things. Um, so we'll see what the future holds for UDISC as the money comes in and, and see what they can use it for, for in, within the app to make it even better for all the players across the world that use it good stuff trevor and like i said you guys have a lot of love for udisc both of you guys i think that's fantastic if we're looking at this particular question though trevor i'm going to nitpick you a little bit what was the impact of the 29.99 price increase seth answered that you just looked at the bigger picture of udisc as a whole so seth's going to win duel number four sends us Rigged. to duel number five We've got <laughs> Seth versus Dick here. Oh, Worlds no. is coming up. It's obviously the big, the big ticket item here in the next week and a half. Who is the FPO dark horse best poised to knock off Kristen Tatar, Seth? Yeah, so I'm going with a up-and-coming Finnish player, the person who sought to track down Kristen at the European Championships this past weekend. And that is Silva Saarinen. 
if you have not seen Silva, um, Silva is the probably the next greatest thing for FPO. Uh, she was at the Schleftia Open just taking the guys' lunch money and putting games. Um, she's working harder than any FPO player that I've seen in regards to building her game and getting her game to the point to where she can compete. And she was the one chasing down Kristen when she faltered. And so if you're looking for a dog horse, you're looking at Silva. She did not have strong performances when she played here earlier this season in the U.S., but I think her um, time on the course in Europe this year helped build that stamina to get her to a point to be the dark horse for Worlds. Okay, Trevor, who's your FPO dark horse? You mean Dick? <laughs> yeah, Dick, sorry. Yes. It's all good, baby. <laughs> you just gave me a little more time to think about it, but... Uh, I want to first ask a question. Is Natalie Ryan playing this weekend? Or at Worlds, whatever, next weekend? Yes, then that's that's my answer. I know she did not do well at Deagle, but she's done well at this course before, and she's always a dark horse right now. I think she needs to get out of her head a little bit as far as, you know, there's a lot of publicity and everything else, but if she can just play her game, then she's going to do it. Um, other than that, own Scoggins. <laughs> she... She uh, was very impressed at D-Glow. I got to do the lead card uh, crowd control a couple times at D-Glow there, and it was it was fun to watch, and she's just solid. All right, so Dick's picking two choices here for his dark horse. <laughs> Seth, drive home Wyatt Silva. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, so for Silva, I think that it's the time on the course and the competitiveness that she's had this season specifically. So if, not to mention that I've only picked one and I went all in. Dick came up with two. Uh, owns sort of an easy pick because she won last weekend. I don't even know if that makes her a dark horse. But more importantly, Dick pointed out the reason why Natalie's probably not the dark horse to pick, and that's that she's been in her own head, right? She hasn't been performing well this season at elite events. Her best performances this year have been in fields where there have been 10 or less competitors, whereas Silva has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe in some of the biggest events in Europe this year, and I think she has what it takes to take it down. Dick, help yourself out here. Can you win? Well, Natalie, first of all, has won a lot of A-tier events that had way more than 10 women in them. And as far as the Elite Series stuff, how many has she even gotten to play in this year? She's still just getting back in the swing of things once they figured all that out. Uh, she's got the skills. She's got the will. It's just figuring out her, you know, her mind space and just relaxing a little bit more, I think. But I wouldn't be surprised to at least see her on the podium and if not, take a doll down. All right, thanks, Dick, for uh, doubling down on your statement there. If we're looking at Dark Horse, though, I think Seth's right. Owen Scoggins kind of gets crossed off of that after a win last weekend. Um, Silva's a great Dark Horse pick. I love the points Seth had to back it up. Natalie Ryan, I think, by definition, is borderline Dark Horse, um, but I think definitely qualifies under that category. Um, I think if we're going points to back up your question, though, Seth has to win this duel. 
So Seth's going to win, go to two wins on the episode. So Brian's got a chance to sweep, or we're going to have a three-way tie in the tie break round. Trevor, it's always up to you against Brian on the last duel. We'll see how you do this time here. Does MPO really, truly have a favorite heading into Worlds? Trevor? No, there is, there is no favorite this year. I think this is the most wide open we've ever seen a world championship. You've got an injured Paul. you got a Ricky who's playing decent, but he's not playing up to Ricky standards. Uh, Eagles kind of in and out. Um, I just don't think you have a favorite. I think, you know, you've got a couple of people that are, that are up there, but I think this is the most wide open we've ever seen the world's. At Smug's Notch, it could come down to one OB or a bad tree kick at Brewster, um, which also is – probably one of the coolest places to play worlds if you ask me because it is such a um a score separator but you have to be on your game there and a lot of people right now are on their game so i think we have the most wide open world championships we ever had i don't think we have a favorite um and that's what i'm sticking with all right trevor says no brian where are you going here you know it's a real shame that uh this isn't bet on Caesars or something so we could see what the actual odds would be because by default there would be a favorite there would be one person that has better odds than everyone else so to answer your question yes there is a favorite now who is that favorite is the better question but I'm going to add on to that and I'm going to say I think after reading a little Instagram post right before I got on this there's a young man from Huntington Beach, California. He's pretty good at the game. I hear he's done it a few times. In fact, I think he's done it six times. I don't care if he's coming off an injury. I don't care if he's on one leg. I don't care if uh, somebody steals his disc the night before and he has to play the whole course with a Luna and a Buzz. Paul Macbeth is always the favorite until he no longer plays Worlds, in my opinion. So that's that. He would be the betting favorite. I like those odds. All right, so Paul Macbeth is the favorite, says Brian. Trevor, you say there's no favorite. Uh, respond to Brian's comments, Trevor, and double down on your own. He just likes to take the easy way out all the time to try to get a win. That's really what it is. There is no favorite this year. You have too many players destroying courses. Calvin Heinberg's been playing great. Gannon Burr's been playing great. Ricky's been playing solid. Paul in Europe was playing good. Corey Ellis is a super dark horse that could win this thing. There are so many players out there right now that could win this tournament, and there is no true favorite, and I think this is the first time that we could really say that in the World Championships. Go ahead and use your easy way out with the GOAT, but I just don't think that's, that's the right answer right now. I would agree that all of those players that were mentioned would 100% have some of the better odds in this activity. Definitely top five players you all just listed. Unfortunately, there's only one guy in the field that's done it six times. Not five, like you said a few weeks ago. Six times. Thank you. Wow, we're, we're recalling Trevor from a couple of weeks back, uh, his slip-up saying uh, Macbeth only had five world titles. Just, uh, just rubbing it in there. Um, as far as this question goes, though, I think it's a very interesting question to talk about because, like Trevor's saying, we really don't know if there's a favorite this year because of the diversity we've had across the, the podiums um, at all these events. So i got to back Trevor up on this point. Sends us to a three-way tiebreaker. Seth, you're up first. Brian, you're up second. Trevor, you're up third. The question is, does par really matter, Seth? 
54 Iron Man par. There is no such thing as anything different. Um, no, I think that in all reality, par is just a number to help tell you how difficult a hole is when it comes to the end result, the score is the same. So it really depends on what you're looking at when you ask the question, does par matter? Does par matter for a specific hole when you look at it in regards to the length of the hole? Probably. Does par matter at the end of the round whenever you've played um, toe-to-toe with everyone in the field? Not really, because it's an aggregate score that you have that you've all earned and you're comparing against the end result score and not the par and so that starts off the statement of 54 ironman par at the end of the day everything basically washes out to a par three all right brian you're up yeah that's a super easy answer seth yes but in all reality the word par matters so much to our sport you know how much i know you see it at every tournament. You see it on every T sign. The commentators cannot stop talking about the par and then the score based upon those par. So therefore you can get a birdie or you can get an eagle or you can get an ace or you can get a bogey. We need all of that language in our sport to make it more entertaining and to make it a digestible product to people that don't know disc golf. So the word par is very, very important. Does it matter? I don't know, Seth. I don't really care. But the word par is extremely important to our sport when it comes to bringing people in, allowing them to connect something to golf or to other sports that use an average so they can have the similar language so we can bring more people into our sport and so that Terry and Nate and Nate can get excited when someone gets an eagle and then does it again three holes later. It's very important. Trevor, you've got the benefit of going third and hearing these two go first. Where are you going? I don't get the benefit of going third. I got, like, the worst answers ever to listen to. Um, A part does not matter, guys. When it comes down to it, the paycheck is what matters. I can throw 30 shots or I can throw 700 shots. It doesn't matter what par is. If I beat everybody else with the least amount of shots, I win the most money. Hands down, par does not matter. Simple. Sweet, short, to the point for Trevor. Seth, respond to those two. Yeah, so I think that Trevor is basically agreeing with me. And Brian's talking about semantics. He's not even talking about the actual background of how it operates. And so when we look at this, I think that it still goes back to the question, what are we talking about when we talk about par? Are we talking about how we're looking at a specific hole? Then maybe it does matter. But at the end of the day, to Trevor's point, if we're talking about what we're doing at the end of a round, we're all just throwing throws. And that adds up to a score at the end. What the hole said each time that we went up to it doesn't end up mattering. Brian? Again, it's a debate podcast. I had to take the opposite. Listen to a broadcast and try to imagine it without the word par or the word bogey or the word birdie. And think about how boring that would be. Go out and play with your friends. You're going to ask, did you get a birdie or did a par? Not, did you get a total aggregate score of 53? No one talks like that. It is encompassed in our game. It is very, very important. Trevor, they both kind of swept your points to the side. They're so wrong, though. Here's the thing. 
Brian, when somebody asks if I got a par or a bogey, they don't do that in disc golf. They ask it, what what you get? Did you get a four? Did you get a three? Did you get a five? They don't ask if they got a par. They don't ask if they got a three. Because let's face it, dude, I played disc golf at Ironman 54. If you say I got a par, I'm usually thinking in my head a three because that's what it is. It's it's just a number. It doesn't really matter. Par does not really matter. If I have 17 strokes less than you, I win. I don't care what the number is. I don't care what, what it's called. When... When you're saying that we need it for the game, we stole it from another game. Like, par is just par because it's golf. It doesn't matter. If I shoot less strokes than you, I win, and that's all that matters. All right, so Seth and Trevor kind of say the same idea with a few different points in there. Brian goes the complete opposite direction. Brian, I did love where you went with it. However, I thought they countered you pretty well, so we're going to knock you out of the argument here. Seth versus Trevor to determine the winner. You both said very, very similar things. Um, Trevor, I loved your rebuttal points. I think if you had had a strong opening argument alongside your rebuttal, I think I could give you the win here, to be honest. But Seth had two great takes here, two great statements. Seth's going to win episode 23. Seth, the floor is yours. What do you got for us? Yeah, so uh, now that I have the floor, I'm going to talk a little bit about spectating. I, I think that this is an up and coming part of our sport. I think that it's something that people like to talk about, but um, and compare experiences. And so as someone who's been to a significant amount of actually, I've been to every pro tour event, let's be honest, um, I'm going to give you the down low on which ones to go spectate at because they're just great experiences. The top of the list for me is Worlds, what's coming up this weekend, not Worlds specifically, but Smuggler's Notch you don't have very many opportunities in the sport to stay at a resort that is on the same property as the course. It's something that really can't be beat. But if you can't make it all the way up to Vermont, I tell you personally, I never thought I was going to when I first got into the sport. Choose something a little bit closer to you. There's several great events out on tour that are perfect for spectating. If you're looking for a low-cost spectating option, Jonesboro is a great one to go to. If you're looking for one that has an AM-side experience, Ledgestone is definitely number one. But very close to number two is Deglow. Deglow definitely has one of the most electric spectating uh, galleries in the sport. And then if you're on the West Coast, I'm definitely going to go with Portland over OTB. But they're very close to each other there, too. And the reality is, is that there's also silver events out on the West Coast that are just as good to go spectate as elite events. And so all of this to say, get out there and spectate. If you like the pro side of the sport, it is completely different to go see it in person. You get to go see all of the pros, not just the top two cards. You get to go buy products you get to be around more people than just your local club or your buddies that you're playing with. And so go out, spectate, and hopefully, you know, maybe I'll even see you up here at Worlds this week. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. I love the direction you took that. No one's really gone that direction before with a victory speech. So all you guys at home uh, who are just sitting on the couch watching some Jomez or some uh, Disc Golf Network every weekend, Get out, go spectate. Those are some, some top events uh, for you to really experience the game in person. So thanks for that, Seth. Congrats again to you for the win. Trevor, you battled very hard. I almost thought you were going to take a back-to-back -back win here. Brian, good stuff again. And Dick, thanks so much for filling in this week. 
Uh, we appreciate all you guys. Everybody at home, thanks for watching episode 23. We will catch you all next week. Enjoy your weekend.